0: Hey there, everyone, and thank you for joining me for another episode of The Mark Guy Show. This is episode 15. Pretty surprised we're already at 15. I feel like I've gotten to a pretty good point being able to crank these out fairly regularly. So I appreciate you listening. I'm going to keep trying to do that. Keep trying to get them out in a timely fashion. Uh, So I'm going to get right into this one, and I'm going to warn you at first that I will be talking about a lot of things anecdotally, and I am going to have quite a bit of evidence to support what I'm saying. Uh, But what made me think of all of this was something that happened in my life. So I'm going to talk about what that was and why it's important to me to talk about this and then draw further conclusions from it. So what happened is... I've talked to my sister over the last couple weeks, and she's in her last year of college. She's graduating with a teaching degree, and she's doing student teaching this year. And my other sister, so my middle sister, I'm the oldest. I have two younger sisters. The middle one graduated last year. My wife and I gave her a pretty generous graduation gift And we were planning to do the same for my youngest sister when she graduates, give them something to start out on. And I saw that when I talked to her, when I talked to my youngest sister, that she really needed a computer right now. And she needed it to get through this year of school. I've been in that position, not having a computer, and I know that it's rough. So we talked about it and I said, well, maybe as your graduation gift, my wife and I can buy you a computer, give you something you can use now that you need now rather than give you a gift further off in the future. And I know a decent amount about computers, I guess, at least more than the rest of my family. So I'm the go-to on that. So she especially liked that I'd be involved in the process of buying one. So we talked about what she needed, You know what, what did she really want in a computer, and we went from there. And so I did some research. I, I like just looking at computers. I recently bought a used one from somebody off Craigslist. I was down in Dallas for work and I really needed one just to be able to operate and be able to do my own personal things. I was using my work computer for personal things, but you can't install any software on my work computers. You can't do much in terms of private things and produce private things on there you could do basic things like browse the web and i could write documents but there are other things that i that i like to do on the computer you know store my music uh watch videos do you know a lot of other things save things record podcasts all on a personal computer and Those are things I didn't feel comfortable doing on my work computer. So I had recently bought one. So I looked at everything that was out there. I had looked at everything from Chromebooks to the HP Stream to lower-end laptops, see where the best bang for my buck was going to be. And I ended up getting a good deal on a used computer, luckily, based on the computing power and everything. I did a lot of research on it. So I... I knew what was out there, and we were able to talk through it. What did she want? What did she need? And we ended up talking through it, and the Chromebook ended up sounding like the, the best alternative for her. And Chromebooks are cheap. I know that they run from probably the lowest-end ones, run from $150. They, they run up to you know $300 probably is the high end 350 depending on what the kind of specs you get with the chromebook once you get into that range though you tend to buy a full windows computer and then there are obviously if you need more specs you can go to higher end pcs all the way up to you know gaming pcs and Macs or high end in terms of price as well but we weren't discussing anything in the higher end and i wasn't either i didn't need or want anything expensive i'm not a gamer I do like to do certain things on my computer. I need some storage space and some speed. But I don't need extreme amounts. So we discussed through all that, like I said, Chromebooks ended up being ended up sounding like the best thing for her. She said portability was probably the most important thing for her and now everything at her school pretty much is done with Google products and she's very comfortable using Google Docs and Gmail and Chrome and that's what she uses on her current computer which the screen broke and she said it's very slow Uh, and so she has it hooked up to a monitor in her bedroom but she doesn't have a computer at the time but going through all that she and i got into a further conversation i found one that i thought i thought looked like a very good deal i had just gone through the process myself but i was saying it's it's incredible how cheap computers are now and how they continually get cheaper and cheaper you know what you get for your money goes up appreciably each year because I had also been looking about a year year and a half ago at computers and I saw even from then prices have come down and what you get for $200 is more this year than it was last year and I remembered back to when my dad he he worked out of the house and he needed to get a computer when I was a little kid and I remember him getting it and what the cost was, and and the cost of that computer was about $1,000, and we talk about it now, you know, I, I, I don't remember him saying at the time how much it was, but we've talked about it since, and that was probably in 1997, 1998, something like that, so I was a little kid, but old enough to remember something like that, especially a computer was still kind of a foreign concept to me. Some of my friends had them, my richer friends had them, but a lot of us didn't have them because it wasn't mainstream yet and the internet wasn't it hadn't taken over the world by storm quite yet yeah the dot-com bubble was exploding and people were hyped about what the internet would become and they knew about all the potential that it had but it wasn't it, it wasn't something that every american household thought about or needed so he brought that computer home i wasn't allowed to touch it for a while but then i gradually was able to as i got older and i loved the internet even though it was horrendously slow that computer was was so slow and if you tried to use it today it ended up dying i think we got rid of it we ended up getting another used computer years later but it was always very slow and you couldn't it couldn't even really handle the internet sites of the time we also had dial-up internet which didn't help the slowness but the computer itself was very slow trying to do any sort of word processing i think it had windows 95 uh, which was from what i hear a huge upgrade from what there was previously so i'm not trying to diminish that computer at the time but if you look at a thousand dollars for what i'm sure was a lower end computer at the time because my my dad wasn't in a position to go out and buy the top of the line thing he was going to get the minimum of what he could get for the functionality he needed in order to, to run his business. And that cost $1,000 at that time, which is a substantial amount. And I think it actually was more than that. I don't remember the exact amount. Maybe I should have checked up with him before recording this podcast. But I remember there being three zeros. I remember it being 1,000 or more. Uh, but now we're looking at Chromebooks And the computing power you get is so far beyond, even in that Chromebook, which is the low end of computing power in computers, in in laptops, you look at what you get for under $200 and it just blows out of the water what we got with that first computer. And yeah, it's been almost 20 years since then. So obviously there is going to be progress, but the progress that has been made is just so substantial. Even remembering back to the, fir- to the first computer that I got, which I also bought used, I guess as a pattern with me, I'm constantly buying things used as, as cheaply as possible, uh, but that computer you can't really use anymore with current websites. I actually tried to boot it up recently, and I could get it to boot up, but I had a lot of trouble with it, and I, I couldn't really, I loved it at the time. It could, hand, it could still, hand, you could still get away with it, I guess you could say but it certainly isn't on par even with low-end laptops and Chromebooks of today so we were discussing that and and I made a comment like that is capitalism it's incredible you know, computers have been it's been an unregulated industry and that's what happens they figure out these companies figure out how can I get this product to the consumer as cheaply as possible how can i offer the most for the least amount of money so that they buy my product and i can still earn a profit and and margins in that industry have gotten very small because there's so much competition there's so much global competition now and it's great and that's what i said to her like wow it's pretty incredible when you really sit down and think about it what you can get now for so little money. And it is accessible to virtually everybody in the United States. Everybody in the United States can have access to one of these devices for you know, $170, for $200. And that should be within the reach of virtually everybody in this country. And what a great equalizer it is. I mean, even this computer that I bought, the used computer I bought, I paid $250 for it. And I think about all the productivity I've had just having that computer for a mere $250. It is really a tremendous equalizer. The internet's a great equalizer, being able to get information even when, you know, even when you don't have access to these elite libraries or you're not in the middle of a big city. Having the internet and having a computer is really all you need to have almost the same level of access to information out there that the richest person in the world has. And... That's really a pattern that you see with so many things. That the the real gap, when you really look at standards of living, the real gap between the richest among us and the poor is the smallest it's ever been. Yeah, if you look at incomes and you know, do a do a percentage analysis based on incomes, that may not be the case. But if you look at what actually matters and what actually matters is what can your money buy and what is the difference between the actual things that I'm using in my life versus what a rich person uses. You know, 200 years ago, the poor among us would walk from place to place. Whereas the rich could have an ornate carriage uh, with, you know, with the finest horses. And then 125 years ago, before automobiles really exploded the rich among us had a car and the poorest among us probably still walked from place to place maybe had a horse probably not probably not the poorest among us they would walk from place to place as well but now what is the gap the gap is between having a luxury car and having a beater you know having a 500 hundred dollar car having a you know a, a, a 2000 grand am like i used to have you know that's the type of car that the poorest among us drive but ultimately they're still using automobiles to get from place to place that's a great equalizer like i said with computers access to information the poorest among us living in a remote town 200 years ago what kind of access to information do they have you know maybe there were some books in the town or their family had a few books probably had a bible um maybe there's a regional li- very small library but you compare that to the richest person living in the heart of of new york city living in the heart of one of the large cities in the united states they had access to so many books and the disparity there is huge but now like i said you give you give a poor person in a remote area a chromebook For $170 and they can go a lot of places where there's free internet access or you can get internet access pretty cheaply now and it puts you on par with the richest person who has maybe a a much nicer computer, the same access to the internet, maybe through work they have access to some databases where they can get certain books and articles and, and things that you can't get access to unless you had that kind of money. And they may have access to a library as well with books that you that you can't have the same access to. But the difference there, the point is the difference there is much smaller than what it was 100, 200 years ago. And going back even further, the disparity would be much larger. But this happens in so many areas of our lives, and I think we don't appreciate it. We don't appreciate how capitalism and the process of allocating resources to their most efficient uses, using a price system then to determine that, to determine their most efficient uses, how that's resulted in really the drastic reduction in inequality. I mean, I don't want to talk about income inequality, but in terms of actual standard of living inequality, it's far smaller now than it really has been at any other point in human history. And I think about it again from my perspective and how I live my life and the you know, the kind of principles that I, that I have and my goals in life. And I have a certain minimum standard of living that I, that I want to have. I think it's much lower probably than, than a lot of other people have or aspire to have. But for me to achieve that minimum standard of living I can do it far cheaper now than I could have done it five years ago or 10 years ago. You know, I can get a computer cheaper than I could have at that point. Say I'd I'd wanted to achieve the same level of productivity. I may have had to pay $500 for the same laptop at that point in time. I would have had less access to other electronic goods. Um, I keep thinking in terms of electronics. If I wanted the same kind of cell phone plan, I would have paid substantially more for the same amount of, of data and a phone with the same computing power. I got my phone for free by signing up with a low-cost provider. Um, just so many things in your life. Vehicles, you know, my both of my vehicles, now my wife's and my vehicles are over 10 years old, but those were top-of-the-line vehicles or, you know, they were nice vehicles they were a Toyota and a Volvo when they came out that was 10 years ago so to get the same level of functionality in an automobile I may have had to pay $20,000 for these cars or $25,000 for these cars at that point in time whereas now I I could buy both of these vehicles they're probably worth eight grand together rather than the 40 grand it would have taken me to buy them back then and the car industry continues to to churn out higher and higher quality cars and i'm amazed I, I rented a 2016 chevy Cruze to drive back home for the holidays yeah the the cruise is what we drove back we rented another car to drive back i forget what the model of the other car was but i was amazed at how nice it was especially compared to what i was used to because i'm used to these 10 plus year old cars which are great they get the job done that's all that i need but even the low-end car like a chevy Cruze has all these amenities that our cars do not have and that really virtually any cars didn't have 10 years ago so i was amazed at how nice that was and that's a low-end car and you're only going to see that process continue and so i was trying to get the point across to her that this is an incredible process and really capitalism when you look at the trends over time it is a beautiful thing and nothing has done more to improve our standards of living than that process than the process of, of people trying to earn a profit by selling goods that other people want to buy and the competition that that engenders and how prices over time decline quality increases for the amount that you pay that's how standards of living increase it's not by redistributing whatever existing wealth there is. That does not improve standards of living over the long term. That's not a process that's going to enable my children's generation to live better than I did. By redistributing the current fixed pie, that's, that's not going to do anything to help them to help continue that process. But the real process that's going to enable their lives to be better than mine is this process of competition And allocating resources through pricing mechanisms through price through price signals to those most efficient uses so i was trying to get that across i think she had a reaction where she said oh yeah I, i i guess if you can't you know if you can't beat them join them like saying capitalism is negative she had a a negative reaction to just the word capitalism. And I think that's been so drilled into people's heads that this process is evil or that, you know, it's dog eat dog. And they think, oh, there must be a more humane way to go about this. But this is the most humane process there is. This is how the, you know, the capitalistic process, that's how we've been able to feed growing populations you know exploding populations over the last couple centuries it's due to the industrial industrial revolution making people more and more and more productive increasingly productive on an annual basis and that productivity is increasing on farms and you're now able to get more food on less land using fewer people um, using less capital that's how populations have been able to explode and that's how we're able to increasingly specialize and become increasingly good at whatever our line of work is and by being more productive we're able to uh, command higher wages because our marginal productivity is higher and our standards of living go up it's it's really an incredible process that i wish we would teach our children all the fruits of of that process and how that is the reason why we have it so good now compared to our ancestors. That is why we no longer have to toil in the fields every day just to make enough to survive just to get through to the next day. Cause that's how humanity has survived for the majority of its existence. But now I have the freedom to be able to, to make this podcast. I have the freedom to be able to spend all day, all day tomorrow, on Sunday, watching football. Because of this increased productivity, that is an inevitable result of free markets and of capitalism. So I was kind of surprised by her. I wasn't surprised, I should say, but kind of disappointed in that reaction. I think you get that reaction if you ever try to talk about the positives of capitalism because it's been so hammered in to our heads all growing up that it's a negative. And Walmart really our perception of Walmart is a function of that attitude as well that Walmart is a symbol of capitalism and we're told that Walmart is evil. But Walmart is one of the great equalizers once again of the poor versus the rich. And Walmart it Walmart has a mission. You know, their place in the market is to offer things as cheaply as possible, to cut margins as razor thin as possible. And they've been fantastically successful at doing that. And they've brought products within reach of the poorest among us, unlike, unlike really any other business in modern times. And I think they should be celebrated for that, if anything. Not vilified. But I think the treatment of Walmart is yet another function of drilling into our people's heads that capitalism is an evil thing and taken to its extremes. You know, we'd have a a very small group controlling everything and everybody else would just be slaves to those few people that control everything. But it's, it's not, that's not how it works. That's not how capitalism works. Capitalism does not inevitably lead to monopolies. Now, crony capitalism can inevitably lead to monopolies. But monopolies really only persist either when the company that is the monopolist does such a good job and is so efficient at providing whatever their product is to the consumers at a low price. If they're so good at that that nobody can compete with them That's how a monopoly can persist or where government has created such a, such a large string of of regulations that no new entrant into that business can possibly, you know, can possibly survive, can possibly navigate that web of regulations in order to compete with the existing monopolist. Those are the only two ways that it can happen. So if we have government out of the way in an industry, The only way you're ever going to see a monopoly is if that business is doing such a good job that no new competitor could even think of competing with them, which is a great thing for consumers. And there is no known instance that anybody has ever been able to put down or actually observe in reality of predatory pricing, which is another big criticism of capitalism. But there's no known instance of that. I know that it's drilled into people's heads. I know that I learned about it. And I didn't know until later when I actually tried to dig up, okay, so when has this happened in the past? You know, When has predatory pricing been used to drive others out of business? And it has not happened because it is so difficult to do and you must sustain large losses for a long period of time in order to drive others out of business. And then w- once you rise your price or raise your prices back up to their previous levels, now that entices new competitors to come in and compete with you again. So if you really do want to try to do that, it's it's not going to it's not going to result in any long term gain. And I think businesses know that and that's why they haven't done this. But I hope that we can, as a people, finally start to realize what good capitalism has done for us and how that really is the engine of our standards of living rising so that was a lot of of ranting or just stream of consciousness i do have some statistics though on computing power increasing so to to give some teeth to what i talked about earlier Uh, but basically there's this measure million instructions per second mips And it's a general measure of computing performance. And so the amount of work basically a computer can do. And one general way of being able to look at how much computing power money can buy is to look at MIPS per dollar. And this statistic I found, I'm going to link it in the suggested readings uh, slash reference articles part in this post. Uh, But basically what it says is this statistic grows by a by by a magnitude every four to six years somewhere in that range four to six years so every four to six years the amount of computing power that your money can buy doubles and that has been going on since about the 1940s and from the 1980s on it looks like that has ramped up even further so that it's been, even, it's been even more than, uh, or even less, I guess, than four to six years every time that it's doubled. It's been more like three years. Computing power that you can buy with a, with a given dollar doubles. And that's incredible. It really is. I mean, think about that rate of growth. Imagine if you put your money away and it was able to double every four years. You know, we'd all be retiring early. That would be the biggest bull market in stocks ever. So that hopefully gives some teeth to, uh, to what I was saying about computing. And then also related to that point, so talking about how capitalism has been the engine of our standards of living increasing, not redistributing wealth. Industries where the government has gotten most involved have seen their costs sky- skyrocket, at the very least, increase pretty sharply over the same time period that industries that the government largely hasn't gotten involved in have seen prices dramatically decline. So I'm going to have another article linked up from uh, the Foundation for Economic Education. I talked about them in the, in the last episode. I think they do a great job. I had to dig this back up because I read it pr- about a month ago. It came out, yeah, just about a month ago in, in mid-August. The title of it is Why Luxury TVs Are Affordable... When basic care is not, and they have a beautiful chart in this article. From the it, the statistics are taken from the Bureau of uh, uh, of Labor and Statistics, and it shows textbooks and college tuition since the year 1996 have increased by about 200 percent. Textbooks 207 percent, college tuition 197 percent. Pretty much the same you know, hugely increasing upward trend. Then child care has gone up 122% over that time, the prices. Uh, Medical care has gone up 105% over that time period. Uh, Housing has gone up 61% over that time. New cars have remained relatively flat. Uh, Household furnishings remained relatively flat. Clothing remained relatively flat. And then you look at TVs have gone down by almost 100% in price from uh, 1996 onward. Toys gone down 67%, software down 66%, wireless service down 45%. And it's a pretty incredible chart because it shows exactly what I was just saying. Is where the government has got most involved, that's where markets have been most distorted so if my logic is correct then you would assume that the areas where they're most involved you would see prices rising the fastest and that's exactly what this article or what this chart shows in one really easy to visualize chart in areas where they have largely you know largely not been involved in prices have fallen and it's because that's where free markets have been most able to operate. And obviously, we don't have purely free markets anywhere. So, and sometimes it's hard to gauge which one has more government involvement than the other. There's not really a good way to quantify that. So I don't know how you could test this empirically. But if you look at this chart, it's clear. And so I think the, the broader implications that we can draw from this is that we need free markets, especially in the areas of our lives that are most important. So I think now you would look at computers as being a necessity or a, a virtual necessity for a lot of people in this country. And I think you could put it right up there, you know, not quite up there, but with health care, with other basic human needs for food and shelter and water. It's, it's not at that level, but it's kind of a, a secondary need, you'd say. And it d- also depends on what you do for work, uh, you know, how what your specialized skills are that you're going to use to make a living to earn those things, to be able to put a roof over your head, to be able to eat, and, you know, be able to take care of yourself when you're sick or be able to pay for medical care when you're sick. Um, so saying that we put computers in that secondary category, would anybody advocate today to say, you know, computers are so important, we need to put government in charge of of producing computers and making sure every person gets a computer. Would anybody really advocate for that? Is there any possibility that that system would be better than the one that we have now, where prices have been driven so low that virtually every American can access a computer, can buy a computer if they need one. They can go out and they can go out and, and get the lowest end computer and be okay and be able to satisfy that need. Is there any way that we could possibly provide it through government, you know, through taxpayer funding more efficiently than the market does? No. And so I think looking at something like healthcare, which is extremely important, why do we put that on a pedestal and say, "Oh, the, the free market can't handle healthcare"? When a secondary need that's you know not quite on the level of healthcare, we've seen all the benefits that free markets have had. I think the more important something is, the more we need to leave it up to markets to figure out. Okay, how can we segment customers? Because for businesses, I mean, poor customers are very valuable as well. Every business doesn't just go cater to rich people. You know, yeah, you have, you have your Jaguar and your, and your Porsche and, and those luxury car manufacturers that are catering to the rich. But then you have, you know, Toyota and Chevy and Kia and Hyundai. All of them are catering toward the lower end same thing in supermarkets and stores i mean if you look at food shopping you have yes uh whole foods those types of stores which are typically wealthy people shop there but then at the low end you have dollar trees and you have other discount supermarkets you have aldi and they're not catering to rich people they're catering to to the low end of the socioeconomic spectrum. Because they found this is our target market. We know how we can make profit from selling to this group. And we've been able to been able to deliver food pretty efficiently to the people and make food available to everyone. And there's not a hunger problem in the United States. Because we've largely allowed free markets to operate. I mean, in food, food stamps they they do uh, they do prop up prices. Um, there are a lot of distortions in the food market, right? but not as much as there there are in healthcare. And what pe- when people promote a state run healthcare system, a single payer healthcare system, Medicare for all, I don't get how they can look at other ways that their lives have been improved through you know talking about electronics. I keep coming back to that because I think that's the clearest example for people, and they can see, they can think about the cell phones they've had over time, and the computers they've had over time, and how much better those things have gotten. But don't, wouldn't we want that same process to be at work in healthcare, to figure out, okay, yes, we have different segments of the population that we're going to need to cater to differently. Obviously, the richest people are going to have different healthcare wants and needs than the poorest among us. But businesses are going to pop up to cater to those different groups. And that's the way that we've traditionally been able to improve standards of living for all and have been able to do it as efficiently as possible. Is capitalism perfect? Absolutely not. And I don't think anybody would advocate that it's perfect. But you have to weigh it against the alternatives. And there is no utopian alternative where everything can be provided perfectly the highest level of service possible for a low price Uh, you know there is no realistic utopia and that's the problem that a lot of the progressives have where they think that oh a you know the goal of the government program is how it's going to actually ultimately be they say, okay, we're going to have universal health care for all. That means we're going to have high quality health care for all at a fair price. That's what they think. You know, they don't even challenge that assertion. They don't even think about, well, you know, is there evidence to back up the fact that that's realistic, that that's possible, or that that's going to be a better alternative than what the markets will provide, what the markets would bear out. They don't even go through that line of thinking. And so, yes, of course, capitalism with its flaws, you know, like I said, it's not perfect. And there's not always a perfect trajectory upward. You know, there's not always a perfect decline in prices and perfect increase in the quality that you receive. If you're comparing that versus utopia, yeah, capitalism is going to lose every time because it's impossible to compete with utopia. Anything in real life is, is, is impossible to compare with utopia. But utopia is not real. And so I I hope that we're able to, as a as a people, realize this, and realize that where free markets operate most is where our lives have been improved the most, and where we've seen the most improvement in being able to uh, service us and being able to to live better than prior people have been able to live. So, like I said, that wasn't really based out of um out of current events or anything relevant exactly to today but it's more the more talking about the environment as a whole talking about the political and uh and ideological state of the united states as a whole and how i think people just aren't appreciative of the improvements that we've seen and how i think if you really sit down and think about it and talk this through you would see that is the best way to deliver the most important things. You know, the, the biggest necessities to people. Free markets are the way to do it best. And it's, it's hurting the poorest among us by not realizing this, by trying, to set, by trying to do things from a top-down perspective. If you tried to do food that way, if you tried to, dis, if you tried to produce and distribute food with a top-down government program, People are going to starve. Far more people are going to starve than do in a market based system. It's the same thing with healthcare. Far more people are going to have inadequate health care under a top down program. You know, given that you're spending the same amount of money. Far more people are going to have poor health care outcomes than in a market based system, all else being equal. So that was the rant I wanted to have, and I appreciate you listening. I know that uh, th- there are probably a lot of opportunities there, you know, where I'm not I'm not constantly quoting things, and it's more just uh, it it is fact based, but it's also you know anecdotal and and opinion based at times. There's probably a lot of a lot of chances there to have back and forth with people out there. So I welcome you contacting me, challenging me on any of this. I would love to discuss it further. I've said in the last few podcasts, this is available on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn. You can subscribe any of those ways, any other podcast aggregator we should be on by now. You can reach me on Twitter, Uh, and I just look forward to, to talking to everyone. I'm really having a good time doing this, and I'm glad to be at episode 15 now. Looking forward to being at 20, 30, 50, 100. So thank you.